Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. The topic of today's episode is What Else? The Supreme Court's recent Janus decision. It was a monster ruling overturning decades of precedent. So what will it mean for the future of teachers' unions? Well, as we are about to find out, that is a complicated question. If you're a regular listener to this program, you know that I am currently without my trusty co-host, education historian Jack Schneider. Fortunately, I was able to wrangle up someone who can help us make sense of the Supreme Court ruling and its implications. John Shelton is an associate professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, and he's also the author of a recent book, Teacher Strike, Public Education and the Making of a New American Political Order. John and I met this spring at a conference on labor in the age of Trump, and as soon as I heard he was from Wisconsin, I rushed up to him and overwhelmed him with my enthusiasm, and I've basically been pestering him ever since. Welcome to the program, John. Uh, Thanks a lot, Jennifer, and of course, it's not pestering. I very much love the conversations. Well, a little bit later in the episode, we're going to be heading to Pittsburgh, where I recently spent a few days for the AFT annual convention. I went there to sort of take the temperature of the nation's second largest teachers union in this crazy time, and I had my handy tape recorder with me. But before we do that, John, I want you to start by just giving us a quick explainer about what the Janus decision actually said. The, the issue in the Janus case goes back 50 years now. And um, basically, there have been uh, groups on the right, the National Right to Work Committee, probably the most prominent, although there's been other groups as well, uh, who have attempted really to weaken public sector unions by taking aim at agency fees. And the way that they have framed this, and again, this, this, the, the effort really started in the late 1960s, um, is to basically make a constitutional claim about the free speech rights of public sector employees. If you're taking notes at home, you'll want to jot some of these terms down. Agency fees, fair share, free rider, and most importantly for our purposes, First Amendment. John, whisk us forward towards the present. When this argument about collective bargaining is inherently political, really starts to take shape. So as you might imagine, there's a lot of uh, slippage between what counts as political or not. And so the National Rights to Work Committee and, and increasingly in the last 10 years, um, the state policy network and uh, uh, groups associated with the state policy network, they have like 60 affiliates uh, uh, nationwide in different states, um, have increasingly argued that any collective bargaining on the part of public employees is inherently political. And so uh, there's been a number of cases in the past um, you know, decade in which there have been decisions uh, put down by a conservative majority uh, that, that sort of chipped away, uh, that, that gave more of an argument to this sort of idea that any public sector bargaining was inherently political, and so you couldn't compel uh, uh, the paying agency fees, that it was a First Amendment infringement. Uh, Samuel Alito has been writing these decisions, and so there's a number of cases uh, that are sort of precursors to the Janus case, uh, Knox versus SEIU, which was in 2012, uh, Harris versus Quinn, which was in 2014. And in those cases, 
particularly in the Harris case, uh, Alito was basically saying, okay, we're, we're not quite going far enough to, we're not quite, um, uh, you know, buying this argument yet, the, the court, not quite bar- buying this argument, but keep making it, and eventually we sort of will. Um, unions were given a sort of reprieve in 2016 when there was a, another case uh, called um, Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association. Uh, that was deadlocked because of uh, Scalia's death. More than likely, we don't know exactly what Scalia would have done. So then we finally get to 2018, and the framework had been set for this, uh, for this argument. And that obviously brings us to this summer's Supreme Court ruling. Break it down for us. In a, in a five to four decision, uh, Alito, again, wrote the, uh, uh, the opinion. And basically what he said is, you know, we, we buy the argument of Janus. Uh, any sort of uh, 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 public negotiation, public employee negotiation is inherently political. And to compel someone to contribute to uh, a private organization with which they may not agree um, is an inherent violation of their free speech rights. And uh, so f- for that reason, uh, agency fees will no longer be constitutional going forward. So what that means, practically speaking, is that for about half the states in the United States, um, and that also in- uh, and that includes D.C. and Puerto Rico as well, um, agency fees are now unconstitutional. And so um, uh, all those arrangements that uh, all those contracts that have been negotiated in basically like half the states in the United States will have to be renegotiated. Um, and uh, workers, public employee uh, workers who don't want to um, uh, be in it, who don't want to contribute to a union will no longer uh, be obligated to do so. So they'll get all of the um, they'll get all of the uh, benefits of a collectively bargained contract that you know, all the people who are members of the union are, are paying for um, without having, and, and those who um, uh, opt out of paying agency fees or opt out of joining the union will no longer have to contribute anything. Thank you, John. Now we have some history and some context. So the big question before us is, well, what happens now? As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I recently dropped in on the AFT convention in Pittsburgh. There were around 3,000 teachers and other public employees from around the country there, and obviously they were talking a lot about this decision and what it means. I talked to one of them. Her name is Randy Weingarten. You may be familiar with her. And I asked her about a campaign that started just minutes after the Supreme Court decision was announced. Some of the same groups that John mentioned as being behind the case and others like it began emailing teachers at school, encouraging them to, as they put it, opt out of their union. The most unbelievable, the most gratifying was the reaction by people. Because our members are pissed. Like, they get what the stakes are. There's been a lot of education and a lot of preparation in the last few years. And they were like, who are these people? And why are they trying to um, make my decision about whether I stay or leave the union? And what essentially has happened is that people are now saying, oh, I guess when the union was saying that these are these dark money forces and that they're really out to get us. They were right. So there has been, in the aftermath of this fuselage after Janice, there's been this huge sentiment to stick with the union. Um, And we have seen, um, we haven't seen very many drops. 
So what I think is going to happen now, Jennifer, is I think that there's going to be the next step and the next step from the right wing. So we can count already 17 different lawsuits because their fixation is on destroying us. So, John, I'm curious to get your take on what Randy Weingarten just said and sort of how she said it. There was a lot of talk like that in Pittsburgh along the lines of, you know, we're going to weather this storm. You're in Wisconsin and you are a member of AFT Wisconsin, which saw its membership really plummet after Governor Scott Walker enacted what's known as Act 10. Um, Regular listeners are recalling that we did an episode about that this summer. Obviously, you don't have a crystal ball, but you're predicting that we're going to see teachers' unions not just shrink, but in some cases shrink dramatically. Um, In the short term, I think there will be a decline in in union membership, right? I mean, I I appreciate Randy Weingarten's optimism. And, and, you know, I certainly um, get that unions now are, public sector unions, are better prepared than they were five years ago for this, right? I mean, in part, that's what made um, the situation in Act 10, with Act 10 in Wisconsin so catastrophic is that, I mean, Walker talked about this as, you know, really dropping the bomb. It, it sort of came out of nowhere. And so I think um, unions in Wisconsin, many of them, you know, this isn't the, the case across the board, but, uh, you know, a lot of them uh, hadn't done a lot to sort of activate their members for a long time, right? I think in union circles, people talk about this as being the service model, um, that there's an expectation that uh, union leaders are basically there to serve their constituency and they, they keep get re- you know, they, they continue to get reelected when they do so. And, and so members don't have to be so engaged. And so I think it was really easy to kind of say, well, if we can't collectively bargain in a meaningful way, then what's the point of paying fees to a union? Um, I think the situation nationally is going to be different. I mean, first of all, what's happened with the Janus case, it's not going to be nearly as catastrophic as Act 10 because um, it's really sort of one one part of what Act 10 did. Act 10 did, as your listeners, many of them probably know, uh, did a number of things that were were, uh, far worse than than what the Janus case will do. Um, But there's a reason that union, public sector unions have put so much effort into fighting uh, the, 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 uh, constitution, the, this constitutional argument against agency fees, right? In the short term, it's, it's going to lead, uh, to losses in union membership in some places. I mean, it, it, it just has to, um, you know, that's, that's why the free rider problem is, is such a, uh, important problem because for whatever reason, either because, um, people are, uh, you know, facing financial difficulty themselves or because they just see an opportunity to get benefits without having to pay for them, some portion of the membership in lots of teacher unions are going to opt out of the union. Now, union again, the AFT, I know, um, as well as uh, AFSCME and, and, and the NEA and many other public employee unions have worked really hard to mitigate the, the, the losses that are likely to happen. But um, I think we're not being realistic if we if we don't um, acknowledge that as, at least in the short term we are going to see a drop in the number of teachers and other public employees who are union members. 
I want to ask you about something else that Randy Weingarten said. She mentioned right-wing billionaires and their nefarious plot to destroy unions. I think part of what's so disorienting about our current moment is that you have individuals and organizations that are completely candid about what their aim is, which means that instead of debating, say, you know, unions and teacher equality or unions and student achievement, the conversation is now focused on politics and power in a way that we really haven't seen before. This is really about uh, weakening the political potential of public employees. Um, go back to the, the, one of the precursor cases to Janice, uh, 2014. Uh, again, another case that Alito uh, wrote the decision for, uh, the Harris v. Quinn case. I mean, he, he basically lays it out. I mean, he says that, um, uh, you know, more or less that, uh, you know, government spending is out of control and that unions have played some part in, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of pushing for ever higher graders of spending. Um, and so th- this really is a, uh, part of the, de- it sounds conspiratorial, but it's, it's really all out in the open. I mean, the design here is to weaken, uh, public services and to, and, and to weaken public employee unions because a lot of the kind of hard right conservatives that, that, that believe in the sort of free market fundamentalism, uh, really, uh, see those two things as connected. I'm talking to John Shelton, author of the book Teacher Strike, Public Education and the Making of a New American Political Order, about the future of teacher unions. Well, speaking of teacher strikes, I want to turn to this spring's teacher walkouts. These were all in so-called right-to-work states where unions are often very weak. I've got a couple of clips here that I'm going to play. This is Ed Allen, the president of the Oklahoma City Federation of Teachers. You know, there was one thing that happened during the, during the walkout that was, I thought was really important. Teachers have felt powerless for a long time. Moving from powerless to powerful is an amazing experience. And the energy that you see in people when you move to powerful, it's, a, it's an uplifting and releasing experience that we can win finally. And so people are going to put that energy to work. Well, I think in Oklahoma, the tide has turned. Um, as Oklahoma's across the country, you know, Republicans have had this no new taxes. In fact, we're taxed too much. Well, that's caught up with us in Oklahoma, and the public sees that. And they see, they see the exodus of teachers. Um, they see that we can't get qualified teachers or qualified individuals to even get into the profession. So they know that an investment uh, needed to, to happen. Uh, and so that's that's kind of a, a sea change, a mind change that I think is not going to go away in Oklahoma. They're going to they know um, they know the investment needs to continue. The public support during this walkout strike, whatever you want to whatever you want to call it, was unbelievable. It was across the state, and particularly in the urban suburban areas, um, the people. You know, you can't get. 25, 35, 40,000 people out at the Capitol, and not all those were teachers, every single day, day after day, restaurants dropping off food, other labor unions helping us out. To see everyone coming together and workers banding together, and it's just not a teacher, fellow teacher, but it's a iron worker, it's an electrical worker, it's a teamster helping you. They started get, getting it. 
John, Ed Allen was describing there the experience of teachers in Oklahoma. And um, by the way, he pointed out to me that union membership there is up since the walkout. So we have this weird situation where, on the one hand, the Janus ruling has made the entire country right to work for public sector union members. Even as teachers in right-to-work states are providing this vivid example of what solidarity looks like, I think we're going to need some help processing this. There's a great irony in um, the this, the decision, the Janus decision that Alito just wrote. And I promise this will be the last time I talk about Alito. You're um, obsessed with but, Alito. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Alito basically says in the decision, um, you know, uh, going back to the Abu decision in 1977 when the Supreme Court said that uh, the reason that we need agency fees is to ensure that we have labor peace. They actually use the word labor peace in the public sector. And Alito says, you know, whatever has been the case in the last 40 years, one thing that's been proven is that you can have labor peace without something as restrictive as agency fees, right? I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he says. And I, I wondered about the, the logic of writing the, that decision when you had all of these grassroots-driven um, teacher strikes in, in red states. I mean, states where um, they are right-to-work states, as you said, and where um, it's quite possible that the, the, the Janus case could make a lot of, uh, the, make a lot of the sort of uh, labor topography in the public sector in blue states look like, or at least more like, some of those states like Oklahoma and, and Arizona. I wondered about the the kind of logic of that and what was going through his head and the rest of the court when they when they uh, laid this argument out because um, I, I think looking at Oklahoma and, and Arizona and West Virginia and you know some of the other states as well that might actually be what the future of teacher unions in blue states look look like now I mean if you think about what agency fees have done right making unions very strong and very powerful political players in a lot of blue states like you know, Massachusetts, New York, California. Um, you know, um, uh, one of the things that it did is it, I, I think to a certain extent, it did ensure labor peace, right? Because it, it gave rank and file union members a channel. Um, now, we know that, that the public education system is not perfect in any of those places. I mean, they're dealing with some of the same things, uh, you know, folks are dealing with in, in red states. I mean, you know, t- more teaching, more standardized tests and, and trying to discipline teachers into teaching more to the test. Um, you know, even in a lot of blue states, we're still, frankly, dealing with, you know, uh, just a less um, uh, drastic degree of, of austerity. Um, you know, lots of inequality between different school districts. I mean, all those problems are there. But to a certain extent, I think strong teacher unions gave rank and file teachers a channel to to at least mitigate some of those things. Um, Weaker teacher unions in those blue states mean that um, you're going to see them as potentially less of a political presence, at least for the the next few years, or at least having a little bit less of the political pull that they had. And what that means, if these red state teacher strikes are any indication, is it means more militants. 
So I talked to a number of people who made that argument, and I want to share a clip from one of them. This is a young teacher at a charter school in Chicago named Mahir Garud. He actually featured on a previous episode we did about charter school teachers who are organizing unions. And I think what's interesting about Mahir is that he got into teaching very much for social justice reasons, and he sees the Chicago Teachers Union as an extension of that cause. Yeah, I think this is a wake-up call for all unions uh, that we need to organize more. We, uh, you're going to see a little bit more militancy, uh, as you saw in these wildcat strikes and uh, rank-and-file-led strikes um, in you know Oklahoma, Vir- uh, West Virginia, Kentucky, Arizona. Um, and this is a wake-up call, um, and they're going to be you might have you know just poked the bear a little bit uh with the unions and you're gonna see a lot more organizing and uh less complacency john we're talking about the future of teacher unions post janice mahir says that his generation wants unions to be bolder and to speak to larger structural economic issues how do you see that playing out as we've seen from the 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 these blue these red state teacher strikes you know uh, teachers are seeing their um, grip on the middle class slip, just like um, you know many middle class people are in this country. And I, I do think they're going to be more um, galvanized uh, to, to push for more dramatic action. So uh, we may see the very opposite of what Alito thinks is going to happen. Um, and the other thing I'll say is, you know, young people in this country. So you know, you, you played the clip that 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 uh, talked about that. Um, it, you look at um, uh, the approval of uh, unions amongst young people in this country. I mean, it's they, they have a very high level of approval. I think young people growing up, and, and teachers are no exception to this. Um, you know, they're they're seeing, frankly, a situation where their expectations have really been lowered by you know the the uh, decline of unions, by the the growth of corporate power, by austerity regimes especially in those red states. And they are, I, th- I think, you know, angry about it. And I think that they're looking, uh, uh, they're, they're looking to channel that into political action in really powerful ways. And so I think um, not, you know, making it more difficult for unions to operate in some, in some you know, kind of, especially as the, the teaching force becomes younger, you know, I think we might very well see, again, the opposite. We might see, um, you know, a real kind of growth of militants. There is a raging debate playing out right now about the future of the Democratic Party, which is not unrelated to what we've been talking about. You see that same grassroots energy on the left that's challenging more corporate Democrats really becoming a force within teacher unions, too. Karen Lewis, the former president of the Chicago Teachers Union, was not in Pittsburgh, but her influence and her push for a more activist kind of union is really the animating spirit behind this. As um, far as the Democrats go, I heard one teacher put it this way. He said, are we going to be the party of Michael Bloomberg and the billionaires, or are we going to be the party of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez? And um, I want to play another clip for you that makes a similar point. This is Jeff Adkins Dutro. He's an English teacher and the president of the Peoria Federation of Teachers. You know, I made a promise to myself after the last governor's election that I would know never again encourage our members to vote for uh, the lesser of two evils. It's just a, a horrible way to try to motivate people to get to the ballot box. You know, it didn't work um, well 
within our union and it obviously didn't work well throughout the state. So, you know, I really do have a lot of respect for the unions that stick to their principles and the candidates match those principles. You know what I mean? They don't alter their principles for for the candidate that will win. We're at a moment where there is, a, I think, a sort of existential um, uh, fight for what's where the Democratic Party is going to go. Um, on the one hand, you know, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. On the other hand, it's it's clear that um, you know that the Trump uh, election has been a wake up call for many on the left, and, and and that was already happening. I mean, I think the the Bernie Sanders insurgents, which uh, you know, I think spoke to again the kind of diminished expectation of many people in the middle class and working class in this country. But, you know, of course, you know, your listeners will appreciate, I think, or did appreciate that, you know, much of what Sanders talked about had to do with education. And, you know, frankly, like a lot of the things that I, a lot of the arguments that I think red state teachers were making about the lack of public investment. Um, and of course, Sanders talked a lot about, in, in addition, about uh, college tuition and, and, you know, the, the making college tuition, uh, more affordable, if, if not uh, free entirely. Um, so I think that insurgence was already on its way. And I think, you know, you, what you see is a lot of people on the, the, the left, the, the left wing the, of the democratic party, the folks who really, if you want to think about it this way, the social democratic wing, uh, people like, um, Ocasio-Cortez, um, and, and as you also mentioned, Karen Lewis, who have done a fantastic job of fusing unionism with um, uh, civil rights and, and racial justice and what we might think of as social movement unionism. Um, so I think those people are pushing, but I also don't think that the old guard in the Democratic Party is going to give it up without a fight. I mean, again, you know, they're they're going to make this argument that, you know, sort of moderate, you know, centrist a centrist Democrat is necessary, you know, to, to bring everybody together in the party. Um, you know, we've already seen, you know, key democratic figures be, be critical of Ocasio-Cortez and, and double down on the idea that, you know, the democratic party is, is not a party of socialists. Uh, you heard Tammy Duckworth basically say that, you know, that, that kind of stuff that's happening in the East coast, that's fine, but that stuff doesn't play in the Midwest. Um, I think, I think they're dead wrong about that. One of the things that I witnessed in my travels around your fine state of Wisconsin is that the unions that have managed to survive have done so by really activating their members and engaging with their communities, including running for office. And what's interesting is that in many cases, you see them breathing life into the Democratic Party at the same time. I think that's the sort of existential struggle right now in the Democratic Party is whether those forces, you know, whether those forces can... Uh, you know, uh, inspire enough people to run for office, can turn out volunteers uh, to, to really do the kinds of things that uh, Ocasio-Cortez was able to do in New York. And if there will end up being a critical mass for that in 2020 and beyond, um, I think that's the question. And, and my card's on the table. I think that's the direction the Democratic Party has to go if they want to build a long-term alternative to Trumpism and the austerity of these red states. That was John Shelton. He's an associate professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay and the author of Teacher Strike, Public Education and the Making of a New American Political Order. 
definitely check that out. And just a reminder that if you are a fan of Have You Heard, you can show your love by supporting us on Patreon. A small donation will help us keep the podcast going and give you access to all kinds of cool extras like extended interviews and reading lists curated by our expert guests. Who could resist an offer like that? Just go to patreon.com and search for Have You Heard. And I want to wrap up this episode on an inspiring note. There are a huge number of teachers running for office this electoral season, and I want to introduce you to one of them. Brandon Johnson teaches middle school in Chicago, and he's running for county commissioner on a campaign of more investment in public schools among other things. He defeated the Democratic incumbent this spring, which came as a surprise to a lot of people in Chicago, and now he's encouraging other teachers, maybe even you, to run for office. So until next time, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. This is Have You Heard? And here is Brandon Johnson. When we see the challenge that is facing in front of us, we have to be prepared to fight. And here's the good news, you all. If we run on the values of expanding public services to those that need them, expanding the interests and the rights of workers, and demanding that those at the very top, we can win. No matter where you are in this country, I command you now to run. Run for office. Run until the drinking water in Michigan is safe. Run until housing in New York and Los Angeles is affordable. Run until the neighborhoods in Chicago are safe. Run until Arizona, Oklahoma, and West Virginia have fully funded schools. Run until the rights of workers are protected. Run until there's a livable wage for every worker. Run until women's reproductive rights are protected, respected, and guaranteed. Run until black lives matter. Run until the interests of working class families are prioritized. Run until there is an AFT member in every single level of government, from the city, to the county, to the state, to the White House. God bless you, thank you.